Although we like to think about ML workflows as straight line narratives from experiment to training to production and then monitoring, the reality for large companies is that all the steps are happening at one time in concert with other models, with shifting data, and sometimes misaligned key feature inputs. Moreover, regulated firms are required to track all the models, the changes, and the impacts of those changes for compliance. Enter explainability supported by model monitoring. Far from sleepy monitoring of changes and anomalies, today's ML monitoring and performance management requires the ability to identify changes and alert the right people, the ability to assist in diagnosing issues, to create what-if scenarios, and the ability to pop models back into production in real time with proper governance. Fiddler is a startup focused on enterprise model performance management. They are tackling the unique challenges of building in-house stable and secure ML ops systems at scale. Today, we are interviewing Krishna Gadi about trusting AI, the technical challenges of ML monitoring, and the real-world problem statements beyond compliance that explainability can address. This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Jocelyn is focused on data, ML, and enterprise software. She has experience as a founder, investor, and product leader, and has worked with both startups and large financial service companies. Jocelyn is currently a senior director of product management for Security, a unified data controls company. Follow Jocelyn on LinkedIn or on Twitter, at Jocelyn Byrne. Hi, Krishna. Welcome. Hi, Jocelyn. Uh, nice to see you again. Uh, thanks for having oh. me on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to have our conversation. For the listeners, can you just tell a little bit about um, Fiddler and kind of how you got started with it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, for everybody listening, I'm Krishna Gade. I'm the founder and CEO of Fiddler.ai. We are a startup in Bay Area working at the intersection of responsible AI and MLOps. Uh, so we've built a product that helps customers to monitor, analyze, explain their AI in production. Um, we started the company four years ago, Jocelyn. Uh, you know, it really came from uh, my work at at Facebook where I was working on explainable AI. Uh, I spent about 15 years working in consumer tech industry prior to starting Fiddler. I uh, started my f career at Microsoft working on search infrastructure and then and then I was at Twitter, you know, working on large scale data analytics and then, you know, and at Pinterest and Facebook where I was working on data science and machine learning infrastructure. Uh, so all of these, the you know, sort of uh, jobs, uh, I was responsible for building platforms that internal users, you know, engineers, you know, data scientists, analysts would use. And uh, when I was working at Facebook, we ran into this problem of model explainability because, you know, Facebook invested a lot of um, uh, efforts in deep learning models to predict, you know, what goes into your newsfeed, what news stories they would recommend for you, what recommendations you would see. Uh, but after a point, these models were a black box. So it was difficult for us to understand how they were predicting why you're seeing a particular news story in the feed, why you might be seeing an ad and so on and so forth. And so that's where my team built a platform that enabled these insights for developers as well as, you know, business users to understand how feed ranking worked. And that's how you know, I got into this field of explainable AI. And it was, uh, you know, something 
uh, and very interesting from a problem perspective, from a technical problem perspective. But I also felt it was a missing thing in the ML toolkit, especially, you know, when it comes to companies outside of Facebook, you know, lots of companies were operationalizing AI, but no one was thinking about explainability and model monitoring. And, and we found an opportunity to fill that gap and started Fiddler, you know, in 2018. Interesting. I want to kind of talk a, a little bit about basic and basic terms, kind of get the landscape uh, before we talk more about, I want to deep dive a little bit of the technical decisions that you've made uh, in this, really what's an emerging area of what is that toolkit for MLOps. And I love that you, I also want to talk about the particular problems of really large scale organizations, uh, because in past conversations with you, it's really kind of opened my eyes to think about how it really works in a real implementation because the complexity uh, really multiplies from there. So, uh, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit. How do you um, how do you define explainability? Yeah, just briefly. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the one of the big reasons why you need explainability is the machine learning models or the AI models are increasingly becoming a black box. So, you know, unlike traditional software where developers can read line by line the code that they've written and they know how it works, they could, you know, debug it, you know, and, and understand how the application works. Where For a machine learning application, because the machine learning models are trained on historical data and they learn patterns from it and encode them in these arcane structures like neural networks or decision trees, it's hard for a human being to interpret how a machine learning model is arriving at a particular decision. So for example, since you work in banking, you know, let's say, you, you know, a bank is using machine learning for credit lending. And so you want to explain why the model predicted a, you know, high credit risk score for some user. You know, it's hard to do that, you know, because you, you cannot really open up the model and understand it. And so what explainability gives you is the a lens into the model and gives you insights into what might be the reasons that the model might be predicting a high credit risk score or you know a high fraud uh, fraud transaction score or whatever the model might be predicting and so i think what's important there like that's very helpful right so that not only you know is the 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 tools are different right because uh, we've got these black boxes. It's unlike the old days where you could have a very linear process, but also the speed at which these decisions has to be made is much different. Um, it's interesting you use a banking um, example because um, I think there's particular compliance issues there, right? And regulatory issues. So not only is it hard to do, it is required <laughs> that you have to explain it. So it's kind of a double whammy there. Um, is So um, when you're thinking a little bit about like, what do you what do you get with explainability? So, like, let's say you know um, it sort of, sort of makes sense. Like, we should know why things are happening, uh, but you know, why should large enterprises really care about explainability beyond compliance? Yeah, that's a great great question. You know, I think um, number one is transparency, right? You know, I think as AI becomes more and more complicated, you know, you need to be able to trust it enough to be able to use it. You know, for example. Let's say you're using AI for, uh, again, coming back to that banking use case for, you know, serving, you know, loan applications. How do you make sure that your underwriting team is comfortable to use the AI-based predictions or uh, to, to serve their users? Or, you know, let's say you're using it for predicting fraud. How do you make sure that your fraud operations team is comfortable with 
you know, how the AI is going to catch fraud and, you know, when it flags something, you know, whether it's actually fraud or not. So number one is transparency. There, people want to know how this thing works. And that's how we build trust. As humans, fundamentally, we care about transparency in decision making, you know, even in our regular interactions with other human beings. We constantly keep asking the question, why? You know, why did you do that? Why why, why did you not make that other decision and whatnot? And same applies for the machine. So number, number one is that. Number two is by being able to look into the model and understand the model, you can actually start, uh, you know, improving the model. You can find opportunities where the model might be underperforming. So for example, let's say if I know that these are the common reasons why the model is flagging false positives, you know, you know when predicting fraud, then I can go and fix the model. You know, perhaps maybe the model, you know, is not trained correctly or it was not exposed to a certain type of data, you know, like that, that needed the, the model to predict, you know, correctly for these set of transactions. We have seen these cases a, a lot of the times, right? You know, especially in cases like gender bias, you know, where face recognition systems came under a lot of scrutiny when they were trained on mostly on a certain, certain ethnicity uh, of individuals and their photographs, but then they sort of started uh, not recognizing people, let's say, of under under uh, minorities and other uh, other ethnicities. So, <clears throat> explainability can help you detect those reasons why a model might not be working and go and improve it. And I think, yeah. and I think number three is basically to sort of uh, make sure that the model is affecting your business, right? So, in a, in a, from a business point of view, is it actually you know, optimizing your business in the right way or not. You, you know, by, you know, you, for example, <clears throat> with explanations, what you can do is you can run, <clears throat> you can do what if questions. Let's say some, the model is rejecting the loan. Right. You can right. say, you know, what would have been, what would, what would, how can the, how can we help the user uh, to sort of get a better credit risk score in the future? You know, be provide mm -hmm. better customer support. So lots of business reasons as well for you to have explainability. So those are the three That's reasons. That's great. Yeah. It sort of seems like, a, you know, when you hear explainability, you're like, of course we should have that. <laughs> but it's good to kind of break it down, I think, because it's about customer trust. It's also about accuracy and speed for the enterprise, right? This is what I've learned in this journey with you is that um, when you've got like a lot of models running, they're running in um, bundles. There's not just like it's not a linear process and it's not like one thing that you can identify to fix. And then the other problem is once you fix that thing, you know, you can't just release it back into production. If you're, especially if you're a bank, but also like Pinterest, Facebook, you can't just release it because you're going to affect the whole system. You've got to have this what if analysis, this testing and a rationale for why you're getting it back into production. And so one of the things, um, you know, I sort of always, we always say it's like no model runs the same way twice. And this is why everything's shifting around and working in bundles and it gets complicated quickly. So what I'd love to do is let me give you an example uh, from like a use case and let's talk about like what Fiddler does. Yeah, absolutely. And more, more specifically, and then I want to kind of under go down to the architecture level about like what it does differently. Um, so um, let's just say I have a bundle of fraud models, right? And they're working great yesterday. I I'm a data scientist. I come into the office today. The fraudsters have figured something out. Right. And they change. And now I'm seeing all this fraud come through. Um, I guess let's just start the narrative there. What what 
I sit down, you know, I, I, maybe I got an email saying like, hey, we're seeing a butt, or maybe I got a fancy monitoring system in place and it's throwing uh, events. Um, so then like, then what happens? Yep, absolutely. I think, you know, this is, fraud is a great use case because it's, you know, in, intrinsically it's, it, it has this adversarial nature, right? Because you never stop building after one fraud model. You have to constantly improve your fraud models because the fraudsters are always trying to learn from you and trying to break your model. So they're always, you know, you always have to be one step ahead of them to to really build a great fraud, fraud monitoring system. So your models need to always be robust. So, you know, what, what Fiddler can do is we can, you know, when we work with like teams that are building fraud models, we help them to start with identifying uh, shifts in their data distributions. So, one of the big ways, uh, you know, to understand how the model is performing is to know, even without the labeled data, if how is the model's uh, predictions shifting between the training setup and the production setup? Because like one of the problems in machine learning is the labeled data is very costly, right? You know, for example, let's say the fraud model made some predictions. Let's say they were inaccurate predictions, as you were saying, you know, got a bunch of alerts. But like to actually get all of the labels back, you know, which requires your fraud operations team to go and flag which ones are fraud, which ones are not fraud. And takes a lot of time to do that, maybe a few days. And during that time, your fraud model keeps running and, and keeps could be making inaccurate predictions. So to make sure that you're not delaying the problem that much, what you can do is you can actually monitor for these data distributions. So the hypothesis is that if the model was to be performing the same way as you trained, then the distribution of predictions in the training setup and the distribution of predictions in the production setup should match more or less. So, and so you use that hypothesis to, to, to sort of monitor your model's performance, monitor your, uh, the data drift, the data drift, and that gives you an early warning indicator that something could be wrong. And it could also be not just the model's predictions. You can also monitor, you can also look at the data distributions of your features. So let's say suddenly, you know, the fraud could be increasing because you're seeing the transaction amount go out of, out of the band or maybe some new location, you know, credit card is being applied at a new location than it, it was never used to be. So you can find those sort of shifts in data distributions very quickly with Fiddler. The second aspect of it is, second aspect of it is when you actually do find uh, like these false positives or these cases when you come back, you can go and explain why uh, this particular transaction was classified as fraud or these set of transactions were classified as fraud. And then you can start seeing the common reasons, you know, which inputs of the fraud model are affecting the fraud fraud score the most. And, you know, are they actually matching with the feature importance when they were trained? And then that's how you can come to a conclusion if something is going wrong with your fraud model. I have a million things to say about all of that. Um <laughs> So, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting, and I think you guys do this, um, you know, there's just too much data now. So um, when you talk about the data, the expected data distribution, um, it can't, you're, you're observing this, right? And inferring what it should be. No one's telling the system. Yep, correct. Exactly. So all of this is automated and it needs to be automated because you get, as you said, in, in you know, you're scoring potentially millions or billions of transactions. If you're a high volume credit card or, you know, um, and then you, you cannot keep up with it. Humans cannot keep up with it. So your models have to be robust. They have to be continuously monitored. And in cases where they are flagging, um, you know, 
you know miss you know false positives or misprediction's you know you need to go in and check what's going on so you can find out problems with the models and you can go and you know complete the feedback loop of you know retraining the model or fixing the data whatever we whatever you need to do so it has to be automated but it also needs to give the human some control right as you know being in a in a bank you know you want human oversight people want to make sure how the automated system is running and you want to be able to know let's say if the model is throwing a bunch of false positives is it actually a data issue or a model issue and then and then and then sort of go and fix you know whatever the data pipeline that might be sending bad data or retrain the model so so you need like the human automation intelligent automation but at the same time some customization some controls that so the humans can do slicing and dicing and ask a ton of questions okay so you take a look at this distribution you take a look at drift uh the system you know make some inferences but they can also get a human assist um Correct. and then um then what fiddler does right is show me all the interplay right of the uh combined models and then underneath the hood Correct. features um and that's kind of where your name came from right that's right yeah so the name fiddler the very first feature that we built was this explainability feature where you could do you know you could fiddle with the inputs and see how the outputs of the models change and how the explanations change so like in the case of that fraud model let's say a fraud case came about the fraud operations person could say that okay what if this transaction amount was not $10000 but like $9000 would 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 we still classify it as fraud or what if the zip code changed a little bit you know would it still be fraud so this gives them intuition to build how the model is working because you know remember the models are not rule based systems that a human can understand right what this fiddling exercise gives you is, is understand the rules that the model may have trained behind the scenes and kind of get that human intuition interesting um so let's talk a little bit about this idea of um fiddling with inputs and outputs um this seems not only difficult but dangerous <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about the technology and architecture decisions you made to create an enterprise version of this activity yeah the very first thing that we had to build was because we were building a pluggable model explainability tool we needed to make make it support a variety of different models because we understood that you know machine learning is still in its infancy lots of lots of frameworks exist you know there's no standardization right so there is tensorflow there's pytorch there's scikit-learn there's xgboost there is sas there's r there's python there's so many different ways of creating machine learning models so we needed to invent a way so we could digest all of these different types of models and provide one standard ui so you could do explanations you could do querying you could do analysis of these models so that was a big technological investment that we worked on for the first couple of years in the fiddler's journey to make this pluggable model ingestion and explainability the standard standard interface and explainability work the second big thing is as we started working with banks and large enterprises we needed to make sure there are access controls based on the roles in the departments there is data privacy built in there's data security there's enterprise you know uh, level sort of data guarantees and 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 availability and sort of uh, uh, you know guarantees so that in a, you know an enterprise a big bank can actually use it and multiple departments in the bank can use it for example as you probably know in large organizations you have restrictions amongst different teams right one team may only 
a set of models that are responsible right. for one team may not be displayed to another team and so you needed to bake in and all those role based access controls fun fact you could have a different role in different parts of your job right correct correct <laughs> yes and within the same team you may only get a certain um, certain kind of access to the models or only access to a certain number of models so so all of that you know role based access controls and what not that was the second big thing that we sort of really like all the enterprise gate features and then you know now in the last you know one and a half years what we have built is we have built this monitoring capability on top of explainability so that you know you can not only not just do this fiddling of models and mo- analysis of models on at rest data but also on continuous data right so where you know collecting the data on a continuous basis like your fraud transactions use case where you can monitor these things ahead of time and you can send alerts so uh, you can send alerts when things go wrong so i think what Uh, what a lot of people we found was like in addition to ad hoc analysis they want alerting capabilities so that they can come to the tool when things go wrong versus constantly checking the tool and i think that's that's another, that's the third capability that we introduced so it sounds like you had this in, like incredibly heavy lift of uh eat your vegetables baseline work right to connect to all of these model types and then make it enterprise grade especially when it comes to access and data obligations and then the fancy part is the mo- <laughs> is the monitoring performance model the monitoring also. yeah 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 and that is um how do you know monitoring and alerting is a piece of explainability how do how should i think about that in the workflow yep so i think there are two ways to uh, you know f- there is two sort of places where people use explainability today one is when data scientists or modelers are designing the models itself right so when they're designing the model uh which is still kind of you can call it the development workflow right so i'm training the model i want to see how the model that i i built is working or i want to create a report around that model and share it with my risk management team or my model validation team and so this is still you know you're you're not you've not shipped the model to production this is still in my development workflow i'm still trying to figure out is this model really ready to be shipped to production so that's one uh, so this is in the development workflow the second is like where you have shipped the model to production and now it's running in production and now this is where you want to monitor it continuously and you want to explain things that go wrong in production so this mm-hmm. is what you call runtime explainability where you can go right. and explain the model during runtime itself and and so fiddler supports both those capabilities uh, explainability during model validation phase and explainability during model monitoring phase and so this helps our customers because they could basically don't have to repeat the systems right so they could have the same infrastructure and that they are that they used during their design time and make sure that the model is working as they are expected and then and then also just use it in production time so that they don't have to retest it in a different way and kind of make make sure all the assumptions are correct or not because a lot of the time goes goes in that when you have two different setups for design time and production time you you waste a lot of time retesting all the assumptions that you made during the modeling modeling process i want to talk a little bit about that um at scale how do you get a model back in how do you get how do you effectively do a what if analysis and that you know is then you have to kind of expand out to you know petabytes of data similarly how do you maybe it's an unreal, maybe there are two different technical approaches but then it just seems very hard to me to monitor performance after a models across so much data if it's really flying through like a facebook or a pinterest um there's there there's some particularly tech 
like particular technical problems and platform decisions you need to make there. Absolutely. So we built our own mon- monitoring and data aggregation system underneath Fiddler, right? So essentially, it, it it's basically a Python-based system. It uses a, a really large scalable distributed database underneath to record all the event traffic. And then it basically aggregates uh, statistics on the data you know, for time intervals. So let's say you you choose a time interval, let's say every 15 minutes you want to compute data drift or every one hour or every six hours, every one day, one week. You could basically <clears throat> set up these intervals or bins, time bins, where the aggregator can go and compute, you know, data drift across all the features of the models, across all the different models that are processing through the system, and then and then and then store all those metrics in a in a large scale database that can then be served uh, at query time when the user comes and checks the dashboards. So that's actually uh, you know a stream processing infrastructure that we built. Uh, on your own on our own and we use obviously open source components like you know for example we use a distributed database called clickhouse which is which has gained a lot of popularity um, it's used at companies like uber and ebay and lots of different places even banks i think uh, they use it i think dusha bank or some you know a couple of banks actually use it for large scale data processing so that really helps us to keep like you know handle the scale you know at billions of events but and i forget um I know you can implement this in a containerized environment inside your VPC. Do That's you right. also offer this as a service or? That's right. So Fiddler is available uh, in two ways. We offer a managed cloud service for our customers who don't want to install Fiddler on their own and you know, you know, know, just want our, uh, our product as a SaaS product. That's one way. Uh, but then obviously large enterprises uh, prefer to run infrastructure on in their own premises. So Fiddler mm-hmm. is also available to be deployed on your VPC or in your data center where you can run the infrastructure, the entire infrastructure on your side and you 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 can then you know uh, you know sort of uh, spin up as many servers as you want to and 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 sort of you know process the data and the models. I sort of want to talk about cost, but I have too many other questions. Uh, <laughs> so um I'm gonna move on. Um And then the what-if analysis, the sort of training side of this equation, are you just doing statistical samples of the distribution to just do the what-if analysis? Yes, so exactly. So I think what you can do for what-if analysis is uh, you at any given point of time you can go back to history you know uh, pick out any t- particular transaction or a, or or a, or a record and explain that right uh, and, across, and and so different models have different things you know you can have you know uh, sort of a customer uh, loan application that you want to go explain or a fraud transaction you want to explain and when you do explain what happens behind the scenes is we do a lot of perturbations, like generate a lot of permutations to the example that you're trying to explain, and then probe the model uh, to know, you know, where what what is the relative impact of each of the features on the model R. So this is where we run like game theoretic algorithms like Shapley values, and you know, there is quite a few different algorithms here to understand the you know uh, sort of feature importance of each of the features. And then help you like visualize those things in a in a manner that you could use it. All right, that helps. Um, so um, we talked a little bit about uh, dealing with the black box. Uh, are there any questions I haven't asked that you you want to talk about? In, yeah, I think I think yeah. this whole concept of explaining a data an individual prediction is an interesting data point, right? So I think I could probably uh, talk a little bit more about uh, this aspect of Shapley value. Our listeners might yeah. appreciate it. 
because i think uh, it's a very interesting idea that uh, originally was developed in this game theoretic uh, world of i guess in 1950s by this person called lloyd shapley and it found its application in explaining machine learning models and it's a very interesting sort of uh, uh, you know um, you know uh, axiom so what Sha- what's what lloyd shapley was trying to solve in the 50s was uh, figuring out how to attribute you know uh, a score or some revenue to a, uh, or some credit in a multiplayer game in a fair and appropriate manner that was basically his thing so let's say two people come together they start a business you know after some time the business starts making profits now you know how do you make sure that each one is getting the fair and appropriate share of that business that was the problem so so the way he devised the algorithm was like you know he created it as a game theoretic formulation so let's say a started the business first and then it ran for a while and then b joined now you compute the marginal impact of a when they, he was running the business alone and when b joined afterwards and then and then you do the reverse combination let's say b started the business first and then and then a a joined later and so you compute all of these different and if you have many more players you have many more combinations and when you have many such combinations you compute the marginal impact of each player in each combination and you take average of each of the of the marginal impact across all the combinations so he called the average marginal impact a shapley value and he sort of proved some beautiful axioms for this shapley value he he basically said that if two players have had identical contribution to the business then they would get exactly the same shapley values or if one of them did not did not contribute they would get zero shapley values or if you add up this shapley values they would actually be the total amount of revenue or the whatever profit that the business has made so these nice axiomatic theorems apply well with machine learning where you replace the players with features you know you have a fraud model it may have 10 features or 20 features now you want to understand the relative importance of each of the features or relative impact or the marginal impact of each of the features in a, in predicting a fraud score of a transaction so you run the same game theoretic simulation now you may say you may get a, a shapley value saying that oh because the transaction amount was $1000 it's actually having a 50% impact or it's on the fraud score or because the zip code was like you know away from the location or distance from the you know home of is like more than 100 miles then it's actually getting a much higher impact maybe 70% impact on the fraud score so you kind of you know that's kind of how you would uh, you you would you could explain it. and it's kind of very fascinating it found its application in machine learning and now it's being used a lot in various different sectors including financial services i feel like it would be a great way to do your cap table <laughs> for sure <yeah. laughs> but the thing is i think sometimes the game formulations are not feasible right so you cannot rerun restart the company and try to try doing it machine learning models allow for you that because you can probe it with different imp- that's where you can do the fiddling and what if questions and so yeah. you can do this what if yeah that's right that's right um you know one of the things i wanted to talk about too is that it's really great that you covered the impact of features on a bundle of models um, one of the things I wanted to double click on with you is drift and why is a particular problem in machine learning? You know, when I came to this problem statement, I was like, oh yeah, we have ske- we have schema drift in the data world. It's a problem because you started at point A and then your map is wrong when you return to it, but it's a bigger problem in machine learning. Yeah. Schema drift also is a big problem in machine learning, especially because of, you know, data schema changes, your model schema changes, you may add new features, remove certain features. 
suddenly there may be you know values of one feature get swapped with another feature and so so your model will break right so schema issues are really big problem models i think data drift is actually a very important thing for machine learning models because fundamentally the machine learning models are not static entities you know like uh, a model is trained on a certain snapshot of data right so it's only as intelligent as the data it was presented to so let's take this example you probably experienced this being at a bank in during covid all the models that may have been trained with pre covid data suddenly became stale in various different sectors i i guess even in financial services when covid oh, wait, hit yeah we had that during the real estate crisis in 09 yeah, and the real right? estate crisis that, they were like where's where's it going we're like we don't really know because we Correct. haven't seen anything like this Correct. So whenever those big things happen, maybe big changes happening like COVID or the 2008 crisis, or maybe even the new, maybe recession that we might be heading into. When nope. these kind of things happen, <laughs> hopefully not. I reject that. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not. But like when big things happen, you know, all the assumptions that you have made, you know, go 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 for a toss, right? So then, you know, you know, suddenly people lose jobs. You know, people, you know, change locations. You know, your interest rates go high or down. You know, all of those things will affect. You know, let's say you're building lending models, will affect the kind of applications that you receive. So you would see a data drift in your features that sort of apply. So, but it can also happen in smaller effects as well. It may be like you launched a new business or. you launched like you you're getting suddenly different types of users to your website uh, or uh, you know you have added a new inventory of items in your e-commerce workflow you know so many you know there can be so many micro effects where it could also introduce data drift which will affect your model performance so what is it become important is for customers it, uh, they realize especially in covid that they needed to monitor data drift they cannot just ship the models to production especially machine learning models and forget about them and so this is where the whole importance of looking at distributions the one that i talked about you know what was the distribution of you know income in the loan applications pre covid and what was the distribution of income in loan applications during covid you know looking at you know kind of looking at different distributions across time and seeing whenever they are changing getting getting alerted so that you can go and see if this is a real drift or a virtual drift sometimes it could be a virtual drift because your data pipelines are broken or some oh, yeah, coding yeah, yeah. bug has happened or an extra zero gets padded or some data source is corrupted right so being able to separate the virtual drift also is very important oh that's that's really helpful thanks uh, drift has a lot of components um I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, what's so interesting about what you do is that you've got, again, a lot of these baseline eat your vegetables activities that have to be correct. Uh, you've got a performance requirement. You've got some hard math on the actual thing you're trying to do, <laughs> which is the performance management monitoring. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the implementation side as well, because um, one of the things that's interesting uh i think you've really focused on a particular bounded context within this workflow which is smart how have you found working with your customers is a good like starting entry point because it seems like you're touch you're touching things that are so high value so important to the organizations um what have been some models that have worked for implementing and getting you know quick wins on yeah. something so important Yeah, I think the most popular use cases when we started working on Fiddler, we identified financial services as a segment, as an industry segment to focus on, because 
they a they were building models they have been building models for a long time and they there is there has been a desire and uh, and also a movement towards machine learning models um and so that that was one number two was you know they had all these regulatory requirements that you we talked about you know like being able to have having the need to explain the models and what not for validation of models and then they needed to make sure that you know there had this monitoring in place because there's high stakes decisions are being made right and so so we focused a lot on financial services today we've got you know, more than half of our customers are banks or fintechs and so the use cases are you know the kinds of use cases that are talked about fraud models fraud is probably the number one use case that we see lots of our customers build fraud models anti fraud models basically you know credit card companies lending companies right and and so being able to monitor for fraud uh, being able to monitor the data that goes into the fraud models schema mismatches is like a huge problem like low lowest hanging fruit that we catch is like hey you know recently we just got a, a big kudos from one of the you know uh, one of our lending customers the head of data science said that hey we had this you know fraud model which was receiving inputs from a form one of our marketing channels and it was broken uh, we did not know that the marketing channel was broken until we until fiddler alerted that this particular input started drifting and we sort of went and check check that uh, channel and fix that data pipeline right so this is these are the lowest fanging fruit that would have taken them you know perhaps days weeks sometimes you know if if things go if things go unchecked then you would see like this slow model decay happening and you would be f- scratching your head and like what's going on with the model why is it you know why is it drifting and you know or if your business metrics are uh, drifting you know what, right, what's right. going on right it's like a yeah. long timeline to figure it out and then it's a long timeline to uh, fix it and get it back into production right. and so if, if you can, like, you can just quit, get the alert right away when things start breaking you know you at the source itself you know when the data itself is broken you get the you get you get the effect and then you know there are other you know big wins as well especially for some high stakes use cases we were able to help you know some you know fintechs um to build more complex credit scoring models as well you know uh, to be able to yeah, understand yeah to extend their capability exactly, because they can yeah. move faster yeah i exactly. like that and um you know i i do think it's really interesting what you're saying here is that so if you're like a product manager or an ops lead uh, in the ml space you could find just one piece of the problem you don't have to implement for every single thing because um, you guys have like a very componentized architecture under the hood, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Right. We are a pluggable service. We fit into your uh, most ML workflows, whether you're using homegrown ML platforms like some of our customers do, or we fit in nicely with third-party ML platforms like AWS SageMaker or Google Vertex or Databricks, you know, whatever platform of choice that our customers could be using to training and deploying models we can integrate into those platforms and provide them with monitoring and explainability. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting, We and you and I have talked about this a little bit, is who's involved in that uh, buy decision? Because you've got some interesting communities there, and I'm going someplace with this. So, like, who have you found as an influencer or a buyer in the decision? It's a great question. I'm just coming off of a board meeting where we presented this buying committee. <laughs> so I, I, right. it's very fresh, <laughs> off, fresh off of my memory. Yes. So I think the buying committee uh, varies. In a large enterprise, it can involve, you know, from, you know, I think there are basically two types of, you know, uh, users for us, right? One is the data science user, the, the modeler uh, in, in your world. Um, uh, the modeler who builds the model, who is who cares about the metrics that, you know, f- about the model, the accuracy of the model, the drift of the model, you know, explainability side of the model. And then there's the ML engineer or the ML ops engineer, kind of the person who 
provides the infrastructure, you know, probably is responsible for the first line, kind of look at the alerts when they happen and, and, and sort of assigns those alerts to the data scientists you know, or is, is, is responsible for maintaining the infrastructure and whatnot, right? So, so typically these MLOps teams are the ones that engage with us initially. They, they are standing up the MLOps infrastructure within their organization and they're trying to look at what are the best tools available in the market or should they build them themselves in certain cases when their things are not available. And they're cobbling together this MLOps work flow, which then their data scientists or their modelers would use, right? So we have to satisfy both sides of the segments. We need to make sure that the platform is maintainable, easy to use from an MLOps engineer, but also is valuable and provides the right kind of insights to the modeler and the data scientist. And doesn't restrict those data scientists. You know, I, the, here's what I'm getting to is just that you've got in this world, like a whole community of, um, you know, very technical, highly cross-functional people who are you know, great data scientists, they can code pretty, pretty well. And from, you know, they're like, uh, don't fence me yeah, in. They want a right? lot of customization. And that's <laughs> something that we add, we had to add a lot in Fiddler over the, over the last year or so is custom metrics, custom explainers, custom dashboards, custom charts, you know, lots of ways where you want, you know, data scientists, modelers want to feel that they could bring their own metrics. They could be in their own explainability algorithm. Sometimes they could bring their own, um, you know, uh, drift metrics into the platform and, and surface it. And that's something that we, we, especially in large enterprise, it happens, you know, in smaller companies, uh, you know, because nimble teams, small teams, you know, they are, you know, they just want to use whatever is out of the box as long as they trust the, those metrics and, and it works for them. Right. Yeah. That's what I wanted to talk about is that, you know, I get it that those guys are, those are really the thought leaders in a lot of these organizations, um, whether the buyers are not their thought leaders and, um, they're certainly an important part of the constituency, but if you are uh, a CEO an IT lead of a large organization, I think one of the things you're thinking about is how do I kind of lower that end user profile of who can find a problem, diagnose a problem. Um, and one of the things you and I have talked about in, in this whole space is the importance of uh, UX. Yeah, for sure. And so, um, you know, I love talking, you know, I love the talking yeah. about the architecture in the back end. but tell me a yeah. little bit about your, you've spent some special time on this. What have yeah. you learned about the UX side for this yeah. community? Yeah, I think one of the big investments that we went into, like, you know, put a lot of effort in UX and the kind of charting libraries that we select, you know, the the, the sort of the uh, JavaScript platforms and whatnot. We've iterated on it, in fact, uh, in the, over the last four years already twice. And uh, and a lot of design goes into it. And we have like a pretty sizable design and UX team at Fiddler that has been focusing on people who've done, you know, you know, degrees in human computer interaction and whatnot, right? Uh, so I think at a fundamental level, the primary challenge that we needed to solve is the UX has to be something that cannot just be appealing with the technical user, right? It has to have some lowest, low, like kind of some common denominator that it could bring a product manager into the fold. It could bring in a risk manager into the fold. It could bring in potentially an AI ethics or some sort of a compliance person into the mix, right? So, you know, that was like a challenge for us because, you know, it cannot be too statistics oriented that is that is impressing the data scientists, but also it has, it has to be somewhat understandable for the citizen data scientists or the analysts. So we sort of st struck like a balance there to try to, you know, get these insights. And the other thing is being able to then 
do this customization where you know we are building reports people want to be able to write nomenclature for these reports people want to write their descriptions and and figure out how to present their report right that's something that we invested a lot on uh, how do you being, do that like back to the ux sorry to interrupt you and we're coming to the end of time but um like what's your process for checking on this ux you're you you've you've got a lot of front end built out yeah yeah I mean, I think we, 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 it's part of engineering. It's like anything like backend engineering front. We have a front end engineering team. We have a design team that, that is embedded in the product management. And so they work very closely in, in looking at feedback. We do get a lot of really positive feedback on UX from our users. That's one of the things our data scientists also love about it because one of the things that data scientists or modelers want to see is they want to, they want to present their models in a good way or they want to see like, uh, you know, a nice U, UI and UX, <laughs> you know, when, they, when they're looking. Hey, at I've talked models. about this because like software people yeah. know this inside and out. You can have a beautiful, beautiful code, but if the business people can't see it, then they're... They don't get, they don't get, they don't value it in the same way, you know, so they, data scientists have the same problem. Then the last few minutes here, I wanted to kind of switch gears. Uh, hopefully I haven't skipped anything you wanted to talk about. Um, no, this is great. Yeah. But I wanted to talk to a little bit about you know, sort of you as a founder and industry uh, thinker. Um, you know, I interview a lot of technical founders, right? And now you've got this, you know, the thing that got you here is, <laughs> is not the thing you get to do every day. Um, you know, if you were talking to some other technical leads who want to found a company, can you share with us kind of some things that you learned in, so far in this journey as a technology person to stay happy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, um, you really have to be passionate about the idea that you want to go after, right? I think you, and I think a lot of the times, even when I, in my sort of uh, experience, I, I, I had other ideas, uh, but they did not compel me enough to go and pursue them, right? So I think, you know, sometimes when you actually, uh, you know, sometimes when you actually have an idea or have have this sort of uh, compelling passion towards to pursue it, you need to commit 100% towards it. I think the first thing is a lot of the founder, a lot of the startups die as, you know, dreams of founders, right? Like, or sort of, or sort of, uh, not hundred percent commitment from them, you know, when they're starting out and they sort of well, die or they just die love the technology, right? Like I get yeah. this, you know, people right. want to sit around, they want to write beautiful code. They want right. to stay at the whiteboard, but yeah. you know, one of the things, you know, I work with a lot of founders. I've worked with you, Krishna, yeah. um, the people on the, uh, radio on the podcast can't see your face, but I can at the moment. And like, you got really excited talking about yeah. the product here because as a founder, you talk about the same thing yeah. a lot, yeah. right? Yeah, it's your baby. I mean, at the end of the day, right? So you you live and breathe it every day. Yeah. So I think you have to have that passion. Secondly, I agree with you. I think the one big things uh, the technical founders always make a mistake is they get sucked into this technology, building great technology. But great technology, if it does not solve users' pain, it's no of no use. You know, most startups also die because they are not solving a real problem, right? And I think you always have to be, especially if you're a founder, if, if you're a founder CEO, you have to question, are you solving a real pain? Is it actually a vitamin or a painkiller? If it's uh, nice to have, then people are not going to pay you for that or you're not going to be able to build a business around it. But it has to be a pain color. It has to solve a pain. It doesn't have to be like a pain for a whole number of people right away, right? That's the that's the opportunity for startups. If it's like a pain for a lot of people today, then some big companies probably already doing it. Uh, and yeah, so you're entering into an end. 
you're entering into into so i think the opportunity with startups is you're trying to discover something new especially with something like fiddler we were trying to create a category so you needed you needed some you needed a handful of people where but their pain is very high and if you go and solve that pain and hopefully that you know those people will grow as you know in the future then there'll be more of those you know users for your platform and and that's how you can build your business but that's very important you need to really find the user's pain and solve it yeah yeah that's hard to remember in the real life you know yeah. uh, so every day to day it's hard to remember um, it. all right well you know it is an emer- my last question to you is just it's an emerging area uh, a lot of us are, are interested to see where ML ops goes, where this kind of model monitoring goes. I don't want you to share like your secret roadmap, yeah. but, um, you know, what are some of the sources, where do you look at? Like, what are the news sources or how do you, you know, how do you stay on top of this? I mean, there's so many players, there's so much going on. Is there anything like a newsletter or places where you get your information on this ML ops space? Yeah, I think there are some really cool people that I follow. Uh, one person that I would recommend everyone, uh, because I come from the explainability space, is this person called Christoph Molnar. He wrote this book on interpretability, which has already become a very popular book. It's actually available as an open source online copy. And he actually has a substack that I follow quite a bit, um, you know, where he talks about, uh, you know, the various, uh, like the, sort of the you know, advantages, also the pitfalls of explainability, right? Like, you know, how, when you should not use explainability and sometimes, you know, people overuse overdo it, it, overdo it and, you know, try to derive causal explanations out of it, which, which, which <laughs> yeah. sort of puts you in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a potentially a bad place. So I think, you know, I think that's a good a sub stack that I, that's I, a good I recommend. one. Well, how do you spell his last name? Christo- Christopher Molnar or Christoph Molnar. Yeah. Yeah. Christoph Molnar, M-O-L-N-A-R, Christoph Molnar. Oh, thanks. I wouldn't have gotten that right. Um, well, uh, it's always so great to spend some time talking with you. Thank you so much for um, joining us and uh, look forward to more conversations and more successes for Fiddler. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. Thank you for being a great supporter. And it's been a pleasure on the show, being on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye.